All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at paragraph 5 in the Confession and primarily looking at Romans chapter number 3. So if you'll have paragraph 5 in the Confession, if you have a copy of that, and then also Romans chapter number 3. We're going to be dealing this morning with the weakness of our good works, the weakness of our good works. Uh, And this is really beginning a, a summary ending to this particular chapter. Uh, Over this week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin looking as to uh, even why the good works or the supposed good works of a non-believer are not really good works in the eyes of God. But in paragraph 5, we'll look at the, the paragraph first. It says, we cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty, and are unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. So we certainly, the confession writers, were dealing with an obvious couple of issues. The main issues that paragraph 6 deals with is the reality of the uh, disproportionate distance or the infinite distance between us and God. It is that distance that is not measured in feet or yards or miles or kilometers, but it is the distance that is found in the nature of man as compared to the nature of God. The distance is infinite. The disproportion to even compare the two would only be an exercise in futility. If I try to measure myself against God, if I try to compare myself my attributes, my characteristics, and I try to compare them to God, the distance is so out of proportion. The the distance is so large that I could never actually find a measurement. I could never find a meeting place where I would be on equal ground with God in any way, shape, or form. So the confession writers understood when they wrote this, and one of the primary uh, proof texts they use is in Romans chapter number 3. Now, the very first one that they acknowledge is Romans 3.20, so we're going to read that one first. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The reality is all the law is going to lead man to understand about himself is that he's a lawbreaker. It's going to lead him to understand that all I really am is disobedient. And that there is no way that I can be justified in the sight of God by the law. The law was not given in order that I might keep it. The law was given in order that I may have a knowledge of what God requires. And again, Romans 3, as we'll read a couple of these verses, shows us this disproportion that's there. And this distance that there is between between us and God. So in Romans 3... Paul is writing about an advantage that the Jews had. Now, advantage is, a, is an interesting word because it doesn't mean better. 
It doesn't mean that they were given a head start per se, but it does say, Paul writes these words in the very first verse. He says, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, he does answer this in the affirmative. He says, much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Uh, Paul, in a sense, says here, uh, if you were to look at what advantage did the Jews have with regard to the law, with regard to the teachings and the oracles of God, uh, what profit is there? He says, much every way, chiefly because unto them the oracles of God were first committed unto them. But then he goes on and he says, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words, does man's unbelief even have an effect on the faith of God? Does man's unbelief of God affect him? Does it affect God? Is God changed or profited by us in any way, shape, or form? And the answer to that question is no. He's not profited by us. We are not giving something to God or taking something away from God based upon what we do or do not do. We're not adding anything to him. We're not giving anything to him. And this is where the reality of even what we talked a little bit about last week, why there is this, the, the foolishness of thinking that I could accumulate so many good deeds that I could sell them to you or I could share them with you. Uh, we talked about the sin of indulgences and the super irrigation last week and the Catholic Church's teaching about that, about how they can acquire enough merit to spread around the wealth. Uh, Paul is really putting all of this uh, to, to bed when you think about that. He says, God forbid, verse 4, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. It's important that Paul makes that little statement there in, in the parentheses. He says, I speak as a man. He, he, is, he is very clearly identifying and acknowledging uh, how he's even making these comments, how he's speaking about, about what he is saying. He says, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, as, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is judged or just. So you, you, Paul is, is asking a series of questions, and it leads him into now answering the first part of, of the verse, of the chapter in verse 1. He says, what then are we better than they? Uh, he, is, uh, he is acknowledging, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Are the Gentiles better than the Jews? And he really is coming to the conclusion that neither the Jew or the Gentile can boast because we are all under the guilt of sin. We are all under the same judgment of God. He says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So Paul, uh, we could spend weeks, and we did when we went through the book of Romans, we could spend weeks just talking about Romans 3, about all the truths in which Paul is driving home.
But he does want us to see the reality of this distance and the ideas that are behind these disproportionate thoughts. So we can, we can never merit pardon. Again, the emphasis is on the word merit. Pardon before God because of the disproportion. So we're going to just refer to that as the vast imbalance. So the, the, the balance is, is so far his direction that there is no way we could ever find a balancing point where we can say God and I are now on the same level. Um, I think even the, even the illustration of using the old-fashioned scales uh, where you're putting whatever that item is until you balance them out. Uh, there is nothing we could put on our side of the scales that would level out to make us equal with God no matter how much weight we put on it. Now, again, remember, we have, we've learned this over the past couple of weeks. Our motives and our intents are even stained with sin. So even when we think our good work should have a certain weight to them, when those weights are put on that scale, it still does not even move the scale. And that's what we really have to understand. Our, our, our works, apart from God, do not move the scale. We don't add anything to him. We don't, we don't take anything away, nor do we add to him. But it is that disproportion, the vast imbalance between us and God's glory. The, the key here is on God's glory, the glory of God, the glory of who he is. Because of the infinite distance between us and God. Now we realize our distance between us and God spiritually and in our nature uh, is it's immeasurable. And we know that that distance has been closed in order that we have access to God the Father only through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. And because we have Jesus Christ, now we have access. That distance, now we are in the very throne room of God, but only because Jesus Christ is there as our representative, not because of any good works that you and I have done. Now, these good works, again, remember, we're commanded to do good works, but we've got to keep in mind we're not commanded to do good works because we're adding something to God or adding something to our side of the scale. We cannot satisfy, in the theological sense, his righteousness. Okay? His righteousness, theologically, is impossible for us to even come close to what he requires. Okay? So that's just a basic overview of we cannot merit pardon. We can never be profitable servants to God. I think most people, many people, let me rephrase that, many people would say and agree with the first part. We cannot merit pardon. But the second one is a little bit tougher for us to acknowledge and realize because we all want to think and we've all been instructed and taught that we are all profitable in some way. Now, this is not an intent to make us feel horribly or to make us feel like the bottom uh, someone's shoe, right? But when we look at our reality in the sense of God and thinking that we somehow bring him profit in ourselves, that's where the wrong thinking comes in. We are unprofitable to God. A prophet means you bring value. Now, a wrong a wrong presentation of the gospel is you were so valuable to God that he died for your sins. That's not the reason that your sins were atoned for. 
He did not look at your value and say, by redeeming that one, I am bringing something of value to me that brings profit to me. It wasn't our value that led him to redeem us. It was his glory that led him to redeem us. And he redeemed us in order that he would glorify himself because he will not share his glory with anyone else. Now it's tough because when you're talking to people about their soul, oftentimes we start off with two statements and we need to be careful about how we say them. The first statement is that very one. You were so valuable to God that Jesus Christ died for you. The other one we have to be very careful about is just making this grand assumption that God loves you in the sense of what we think about. We put something on value saying that the value of us is what made God love us. Okay, do you see the distinction here? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful about how I'm saying this. It is, it is not the value that led God to love you. Okay, and that's, that's understandable about why it thinks, because we all have this desire and feel as if, well, I've got to have some value. But whatever good is in us or in them, the way I put this, is from the Spirit. Now, the good works that we do, and we are commanded to do good works, we are to do good works and we do good things. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Remember, the good that we have is from the Spirit, but we are always corrupted by our sins, and so we could never endure God's judgment, which basically means if I was to have God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness removed from me and then left standing, I would not be able to endure the judgment that would be upon me. Isaiah 64 is about the filthy rags. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Filthy rags don't provide any sort of value at all. They don't, they don't give anything or contribute to it. Um, Psalm 143, which is actually one of the footnoted in that particular paragraph. I want you to read, what the, read with me what the psalmist says here in Psalm 143. Because these first few verses really drive home the point of enduring God's judgment. And this is, this is a Psalm of David, as so many of them are. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant. In other words, don't judge me in my person, don't judge me in, in my nature, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul, he hath smitten my life down to the ground, he hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. David really makes a, a deep request here by saying, please don't enter into that judgment with me on my own merits and on my own righteousness. Because if you do, I understand that no man will be justified. So no person's going to be able to stand if they are judged according to uh, that standard of righteousness in which God has said. So you, you can't endure God's judgment just on your merits alone or on your own sense of goodness. So the good works of believers 
cannot merit, and I have in parentheses, just to use that term, deserve, or earn anything from God. They cannot earn salvation, rewards, or any favors from God by their good works. Okay, that's just kind of giving it like a textbook definition of why I can't merit or deserve. Think about merit as being deserving of. Okay? Um, is that, is that an, edu- it's an educational award, the Merit Scholar? Is that what that's, is that what that's called? Well, they're, they're determined to be that scholar because of what they've done to earn that title. Right? Not everybody becomes a Merit Scholar. But they've earned it, and it, it, the reason they have it is the very educational works that they have done. But God doesn't work that way. God doesn't give us merits. That, or we don't give God merits. He is the one through the Spirit that gives us the righteousness of Christ in order to, to make us stand before Him. So four main reasons are given as to why the good works of believers cannot earn any form of reward from God. Works of merit are impossible or deserving work impossible because our good works are disproportionate to the reward. Okay, you just base it on that idea of disproportion. What God is giving us as a reward compared to what we would offer him, there's no comparison. But these main reasons are there is no equivalency between what God requires and what he gives in return. So (laughs) you've You've got this deep paradox here about the reality that we cannot find this equivalent between us and God and saying, here's what I would require to give you a reward and you can't meet the standard. It it doesn't line up. I, I, I can't find a place where I can do that. And this one, this one kind of strikes at the heart. Good works are inconsequential to God. Something of consequence means that it, it changes or alters the outcome. Uh, some of you have grown up in churches all your life saying that what you really need to do is just change God's mind. <laughs> How many of you have heard that before? Change God's mind. That the purpose of prayer is to change God's mind. And that's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer has never been to change God's mind. It has always been to desire that God's glory and God's will would be accomplished and that God would change your will into his will. Make me willing to accept your will, not changing God's mind. Now, one of the many examples that we find is in the book of Job, chapter 22, when Job's three friends are coming to him trying to explain to him what God is doing, which is always a very dangerous Uh, a dangerous endeavor. Uh, I try to come to you and I try to explain to you, well, here's what's going on in your life. Here's why you're going through this. Here's why this is happening. And remember, Job's three friends kept coming to the conclusion that, Job, you must have done something really, really bad to be enduring what you're enduring. I mean, (laughs) there's there's got to be a cause and an effect. In other words... Job, if, if you weren't doing something badly, God wouldn't do this. And it's what leads to the false idea that if I just clean up my act and I do everything I can to do right, God will spare me from deep trouble. 
The problem is, what are you going to do with all those people who truly are living holy lives and they are desiring to do God's will and yet they still continue to seemingly have all sorts of afflictions in their life? All we have to do is look to the story of Job and realize that what's happening in this world is not of any consequence to God as far as changing his plan. And think about all the things we get stirred up about. Think about all the things you're stirred up about today that are inconsequential to God's plan, and they're not even affecting it one iota. They're not changing what God's doing. But when Job's friends came to him, it says Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter into, into, with thee into judgment? Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth and the honorable man dwelt in it. I mean, the, the, the questions that are being asked here and the ideas that are being, prevented, are being presented here, can we truly be profitable? They cannot profit God in of ourselves, and they cannot satisfy the main thing, which is sin. That's our biggest problem. Unless you can atone for your own sin... You can't bring profit to God in the sense of what we're talking about for our discussion this morning. Because we already know that's an impossibility. We can't atone for it. We can't satisfy the demands of a holy and righteous God. That God's requirements are much too high. They are disproportionate to our ability. We cannot do what is required in essence. Back in Romans 3, it says, Now we know... That what things soever the law saith, it is saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Well, who's under the law? Every individual. So whose mouth is stopped in defense of the law as their way of righteousness? Every one of our mouths is now stopped. It means you, you, there's nothing you could offer in your defense. There's nothing you could say, well, God, have you considered this aspect of my profitability? Have you considered what I bring to the quote-unquote spiritual table? Have you really looked at all my gifts? Have you really considered who I am? And yet, he goes that, he says, all the world may become guilty before God. So when the law is revealed and man reads the law, Man comes at a conclusion, and notice he says the verse, first three words of verse 19, now we know we are all equally found guilty under that law. There is nobody who can stand up in their defense and say, I kept the law. I live by the law. Like that rich young ruler that says, I've kept your commandments from my youth up. Do you realize what he was actually saying? He, he, he could not have kept him from his youth up, but in his mind he did. There are people you're going to run into who truly will tell you, I have kept God's commandments from my youth up, and sadly they believe it. 
And even when you begin asking the searching questions about, okay, if you haven't committed outward acts of breaking the commandments, what about up here? What about in your heart? What about the man or even the woman for the matter says, I've never committed the actual act of adultery. Maybe you didn't, but you've committed it in your heart. At some point in time, you've committed it in your heart. I've never outwardly lied. We know that's a lie, but if you said that, even within some of your motives, your intent, sometimes you intend to deceive and you may not tell a lie, but you move the circumstances around in order that a lie might be believed, even though you never actually lied. The law was never intended to say, now keep the law and you'll become profitable to God. Paul was saying simply, the law was given to show you how you cannot stand before God and that your works will never measure up to gain you righteousness with him. So we can't satisfy sin. That's our big problem. So thirdly, all of our good works originate by the spirit of grace. If good works, notice again in parentheses, which God himself has originated. So the only thing good is what God has originated. The only good works are what God has given to us. So that takes away us bringing something to the table. He gave us the good works, created in good works, right? They are themselves the gifts of free and sovereign grace. There is certainly no merit in them before God. If, if he doesn't give them to us, then they would have absolutely no merit, right? So that if our works could gain merit, if they could do that, then everything we've talked about already today would have to be undone. We can't claim something we didn't earn. We can't give something we didn't possess. It is, in essence, giving back to him what he gave us. It's really the simple way of putting it. So every good work I do originates from him that's accepted before him is because he gave me the gift to do it, the gifts of the Spirit. Galatians 5 talks about that. And we, again, we often talk about how do I exercise these gifts of the Spirit? What can I do to show love? What can I do to show joy? What can I do to show uh, patience and all those? And when Paul was writing there in, in Galatians 5, verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, again, or the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against there such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us, also, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. These things are going to be evidenced in the person who has the Spirit. We spend a lot of time saying, okay, what, how do I stir up the gift of love in the church? How do I stir up the gift of joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness? I don't stir that up. That's coming from the result of the Spirit. Some of us have wearied ourselves, absolutely wearied ourselves, trying to make somebody give evidence of something that they do not possess. Now again, do I have somebody in mind? No, not in particular. But how often have we been told that we have to, we've got to do something. We've got to, we've got to motivate them. I, I am not 
a motivational speaker in any way, shape, or form. My intention is not to motivate you. My intention is just to preach the word of God, give you what the Bible says, and allow, let me rephrase that, God's going to do what he's going to do. I'm not allowing God to do anything. I'm not, God's not waiting for my permission to say, okay, God, I have done my part. I have delivered this great message this morning. I've given this great lessons. Now you swoop on in and do your work. He doesn't need me. He never has needed me. It's a privilege to be able to speak for him, not just even in a pastoral role, but in in your role and our role as believers. These are privileges to be able to speak and to give evidence of our salvation. Not because we're bringing God profit. If you walk out of this in this world and you think I am bringing God so much profit by who I am, you have a misunderstanding of who God is. Remember, we gave that illustration in Luke 17 about about when the the servants came in, the one had been plowing, and he came in and he was he was surprised he wasn't getting any reward. And basically, the Lord says to him, "Why would I reward you just doing what you're supposed to do?" Why would, why would I give you, it, it's kind of like our reward society. Let's just give everybody a participation trophy. And let's just say we've all earned it. No, it's, it's the works of God. And again, who gets all the glory for it? Well, we've got to remember, for everything we do on our own is mixed with sin. So even when we claim that we're doing good works, they are therefore at best when we have done all we can. Many of you have heard that principle. Well, I was sincere. So sincerity, sincerity is of a consequence to God? Because you were sincere? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll accept that now. Even when we've done all we can, offer the very best that you have, give the very best that you can do, all that you have, it'll still fall short of the glory of God. It'll still fall short if those works are not the works that are the evidence of an actual conversion. So good works come to believers as gifts from God the Holy Spirit. So we cannot earn or merit anything from God because merit is not truly ours. That's the key to this. You can't earn merit because you don't own merit. It changes the whole narrative when we think that we have merit and when God says the only merit that satisfies me is the merit of Christ. So we think about it from the standpoint that merit is not truly ours. That merit only belongs to God himself. Now, does that mean that we never have good works in our lives? No, it's absolutely contrary. You should have good works in your life. This is, not a, this is not a lesson that says, okay, you shouldn't have any good works. No, if you are truly doing good works, they are the result of the work that God is doing in you. And because God's the one doing it, it is acceptable to God. The Apostle Paul was not running from place to place trying to figure out how can I gain points with God. Paul was not going from place to place saying, now, uh, Philippians, if you'll do this, you'll gain merit with God. Philippians, if you'll do this, or Colossians, if you'll do this, you'll gain merit with God. He was telling them, this is, this is what God's presence in your life actually does. There's actually an effect. 
Okay, so now these theology matters, these questions, I've pretty much already answered them today, but I still want us to think about them. And again, almost like we got into that deep conversation last week, that just about the various ideas behind the belief of selling those indulgences and sharing. So baseball, what we've learned today, why can men not merit the merits of Christ? Why can't man merit the merits? Comes back to an understanding of what merit is, right? So why can't, why can men not merit it? If somebody, you're having, a, you're having a conversation over coffee and somebody says, why can't I merit anything with God? What do you tell them? Because I'm going to tell you, people that even say, I don't go to church, I don't really have a real working understanding of God, are going to have in, innately in their heart, what do I need to do? When they start peaking interest, oftentimes the first thing in their mind is, what do I need to do to gain favor with this God that right now I'm not so sure I believe in? So how do you combat that? See, you and I, we're, we're talking in a safe place this morning for the most part. But I'm talking about the person across the table from you that is saying, first of all, tell me why my, why my works don't merit anything with God. Well, everything we have, everything we do, came from God originally anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. without, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit in you, there is no goodness. Right. We have so in my life, when I've had troubles or I've come through things, it's only because of the Holy Spirit. And those are things I've learned that mm-hmm. God's grace is all, really all we need. It's hard to explain to someone who doesn't have the Spirit. Because it really it is, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a total surrender, mm-hmm. And you, you hit on a good point about trying to discuss these truths without someone who has the Spirit. It's, a diff, it's, it's, an, it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility to have a conversation that's on the same level as far as matching up because they're not going to understand the things of the Spirit if they don't possess the Spirit. Yeah, that would be give, the, you would be giving them the straight up, what can you do answer. Exactly, yep, you'd have to be absolutely morally perfect. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect starting point. So you've got to start at the point of under, man has to understand who he is before God to begin with. That's what's wrong with most gospel presentations. We're jumping, we're sadly jumping right to having them pray a prayer that they don't even understand why they're praying in the first place and making people pray a prayer just by saying, do you believe you're a sinner? Is not, that's not enough. You're, you're, you have to even begin to understand what is sin and why is it 
the very thing that keeps me from God, absolute moral perfection. Because you're going to run into people who think they are morally perfect. (laughs) You're going to meet them. So it's starting at that it's starting at ground zero. It's starting at the very place of what is man and who is God. Remember that infinite distance between the disproportions? We have to start there. So, so why, since we know about the merits, and why can't believers pay back God for the offense and the guilt of their previous sins by their good works? Is it possible for someone to mistake the gift of good works as that they are still in some way, shape, or form paying back God? Yeah, I think because we saw that our good works originally come from God, we can't earn any merit because it wasn't ours in the first place. Right. Give, so he gets nothing from that. Right. It wasn't ours to give in the first place, right? That's good. It, it, it really all comes back to everything that we are has been given to us by God. So if somehow we can add an extra, if we could add an extra value to anything we do, we make, we really make the cross, we, what Paul talked about, we make the cross of none effect. Or even we lessen the effect of the, of the cross. You know, just to, just to alter it slightly and just say, yeah, but there's got to be something good in me. Well, if you believe in total depravity, it's the head of your crown of your head to the soles of your feet. There's no part sin hasn't infiltrated. Go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and that goes back to, it goes back to a little bit what we talked about last week about in some way, shape or form, what can I do to get myself back to even with God? How do I get myself back into the, and because I still think you've got that idea out there that people are still believing. How, how do I know I'm going to go to heaven? You'd be surprised. I mean, people may not say it, but they actually believe my good works have got to outweigh my bad. As long as that balance is just, even if it's just slightly over, I'm, in, I'm good. If there are people get up every day, they're measuring. That's how they're measuring. That's their quote-unquote assurance. My good's outweighing my bad, and some are living in absolute terror by saying, I don't know if my good outweighs my bad, and if I do die, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or not. So what a, what a terrible, terrible way to live. Yep. What he thinks God requires. requires. Yes. And the law and, and the only one that could fulfill right. the requirement was, was Christ himself. Yeah. So goes back to that absolute moral perfection. Yep. Yep. For us to fulfill 
right? I heard someone earlier this morning, I was listening to a sermon um, from the UK today, actually this morning, and um, the man was giving the example of, of the, the way the Puritans used to preach. And he said that the problem with the Puritanical type preaching today is, he said, the Puritans preach too much to almost make you doubt if you're really in the faith. And I sat back and I thought, you know, for so long we've kind of had this idea, I said, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to doubt anything. But... <laughs> maybe we do need to be challenged by what we're actually really standing upon. And maybe it's good for us every once in a while to say, really be challenged by what the word of, what are you really relying upon? Is it truly, are you relying on Christ alone or are you relying on Christ plus something else, sprinkled with a little bit of you, a little bit of this, a little bit of that? But we've, 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 we've said this, I, I, I don't, and we start conversation. I, I don't want you to doubt your salvation. Well, let's not use the term doubt your salvation, but let's take the Apostle Paul's approach. What did he say? Examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. That wasn't a one-time thing. Every time they came together for the Lord's table, he was saying, examine yourself to be sure you're in the faith. And he's not suggesting because you might have lost it between last Lord's Day and today. But yet, do you actually possess it? I'm convinced that there are people who've taken the Lord's Supper a hundred times throughout their life and they're not in the faith. Now, if that, makes us, if that brings us to a, a question and we say, okay, boy, that's kind of terrifying. Shouldn't we be brought to the place to examine ourselves on a regular basis to be sure that we are trusting in the right one. So that's really the purpose of these, of these studies is to help us uh, understand that. Well, let's stop there for this morning and we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll pray and we'll have our time of fellowship till about 11.15. It's about 10 till 11, so about 25 minutes and then we'll come back for our uh, regular worship service this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the scriptures and want to thank you for just the the way that we can gather together and we can discuss these great truths of Scripture. I pray, Father, that you would continue to encourage and strengthen us. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, truly, through the Spirit, uh, examine ourselves to be sure that we are trusting in Christ alone and his merits and his righteousness alone. Lord, we do pray for any that may be here today that have not yet repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and we pray, Father, if it be your will to open those eyes and unstop the ears and make them willing to believe, Father, may we rejoice with them. And uh, Lord, we just again thank you for this time we have today. And uh, Lord, may you uh, just remind us of these great truths over and over again. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.